0: I do count it a great privilege to have this opportunity to worship with you. It is a wonderful gift from God. But as we confess in the Apostles' Creed, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church, and it's an article of faith. And so to see the people of God gathering from this entire region, and many of you maybe like ourselves from out of state or maybe even out of country, to assemble the Lord's people together, and the Lord gives life to his church, and it just springs forth. And uh, that is especially true uh, this morning as I worship with you. It's a delight to worship our triune Savior together. I bring you greetings from the Jerusalem Gateway Partnership, and particularly Ilya and Panina Lizorkin, who serve with us in Haifa, in Israel. And we praise God for your support of Ilya and Panina for many years while they were church planters up in northeast Philadelphia, and now for these last several years in Israel. Uh, I can assure you that God is blessing his ministry, and your investment in them is bringing great fruit for the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so I just praise God for your support. Now, we likewise support uh, Ilyan Penina, Panina and we are uh, in partnership with you in that ministry together. So I do also bring greetings from our congregation, New Life in Christ Church in Fredericksburg, Virginia, that uh, we have heard testimony of Orangewood and its kingdom mentality, its kingdom commitments, and it has been a blessing for us to just know by reputation the congregation, uh, the congregation of Orangewood Presbyterian, and then to meet your pastor, Jeff and Katie, on this trip in this past April, together with other pastors. It was just a great joy to be able to share that vision with another congregation. Our congregation has been involved in supporting congregations in, in Israel uh, through the Jerusalem Gateway Partnership, and then to have, have these pastors come alongside was a great joy to me. So it's a great blessing and encouragement to me to be with you this morning and to share this vision from God's Word that He alone can rescue. And as you well know, that the Middle East needs to be rescued, does it not? It needs to be rescued, rescued from its own sin and blindness and its own resistance to the Lord of glory, that I praise God that I can bring the blessing of that one who the Father is seated on his holy hill of Zion, that he is the Messiah. And the Father has invited the Messiah to ask of me, and I will give you the heathen, or I will give you the nations for your inheritance. And our Lord Jesus is asking, and he will not be denied. Indeed, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth, as it is in heaven. That will come to pass, and the knowledge of the Lord will cover the earth, even as the waters cover the earth. And I pray that as we look at the scriptures, that we can lift up our eyes and see that the fields are white unto harvest. If you'd be willing to turn your Bibles to Psalm 122, I'd like to read the entire psalm, but our focus is on verse 6 which I'm sure is familiar. Psalm 122. I was glad when they said unto me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Our feet have been standing within your gates, O Jerusalem. Jerusalem is built as a city that is compact together, where the tribes go up, the tribes of the Lord, to the testimony of Israel, to give thanks to the name of the Lord, for the thrones are set there for judgment, the thrones of the house of David, Pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. Peace be within your walls. Prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and companions, I will now say, peace be within you. Because of the house of the Lord our God, I will sing your good. Please pray with me. Our God and our Father, we thank you and praise you that you have motivated King David to write these very words in four the children of Israel, to sing them together, thousands of them, tens of thousands, as they would ascend up the hill to that temporal holy hill of Zion there in Jerusalem, to the temple. And we join our voices. We seek for you to stimulate our imaginations, how the tribes and the nations and the peoples of the earth will go up to the house of the Lord, indeed that heavenly house, that heavenly Jerusalem, that heavenly Zion, where all the walls have been torn down between Jew and Gentile and between uh, all those who at this present time may find many reasons to be divided from one one another. But we pray that you would send forth your Holy Spirit and give us a gospel imagination to be able to see how the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ can tear down age-old, centuries-old, even millennia-old walls that exist and have brought great distress to the Middle East, to the city of Jerusalem, and indeed to the world. We pray that you would help us to see the gospel as the power of God, and to salvation to the Jew first, and also to the Arabs, to the Gentiles. We've known it in our own hearts, and we pray that this would be true to all the nations, and that you would gather your people, that we might sing your praises into eternity that we might bless your name, that worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive all honor and glory and power and riches, that we might bless your name together and never tire of it throughout all eternity. Gather your people, because Jesus Christ is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He's the Amen, the beginning and the end, and we bless his name. Give us a vision of Jesus ruling and reigning, we prayed in our Savior's name. Amen. One of our partners with the Jerusalem Gateway Partnership, is in Alexandria, Egypt. And at the beginning of February, he sent us a letter of testimony. He said, for us, 2011 began with a blast, literally. Twenty minutes into the new year, large explosions in front of a church here in Alexandria, in Egypt, killed over 20 people and injured dozens. The explosion sent shockwaves throughout Egypt. Many Christians felt very fearful. Others demonstrated in the streets in a rare show of anger. On a positive note, the explosions caused countless Muslims to come out with strong condemnations and to express new sentiments of sympathy with Christians. Many Muslims protected churches during worship services a few days after the terrorist attack. Then just three weeks later, on January 25th, unprecedented large protests broke out all over the country against police brutality and corruption. Though the protesters were peaceful, they were met with violence. Hundreds died and were injured. The protest quickly became a revolution that forever changed the history of this country. Political discussion... I'm sorry. We thank God that the combined effect of the events of January 1st and January 25th was to bring Egyptians together across social, economic, and religious barriers. Christians protected Muslims as they prayed with armed security personnel surrounding them. Christians also held service in the middle of T- Tahrir Square in Cairo. Something that no one would have imagined even just days earlier. I'm cautiously optimistic that this amazing wave of political change throughout the Arab world will lead to more political and religious freedoms. We're very pleased that this movement surprised Islamists and many others. Now, there are serious reports that the former minister of interior was behind the church bombing. The former regime fomented sectarianism as a justification for its brutality and dictatorship. Do pray that this secular movement for freedom and human dignity will reach full fruition without being hijacked by new dictators or religious fanatics. But since those days, we've seen uprisings throughout the Middle East, in many places, in in Bahrain, uh, certainly in Tunisia, which triggered many of this, and even before that, in Iran, people crying out, not for Allah Akbar, not death to the United States, the United States is the great Satan. We don't hear any of that. What we are hearing is a disillusionment with Islam. What we're hearing is a desire for freedom, a desire to be respected. Just this past Friday in Yemen, hundreds of thousands of Yemenis packed Sana'a, the capital, to overthrow the regime there, crying out for the overthrow of the regime there. Even the mosques were closed. And this is unheard of, to close the mosques on their Sabbath so that the demonstrators could demonstrate. This is certainly extraordinary times. And the Lord calls us to pray, thy kingdom come, to pray for these peoples. They are crying out for freedoms uh, that they may not even understand, but they certainly want to be respected as uh, people with dignity, that their dignity be respected, that they be respected as individuals. They want an economic future. Um, that they're crying out for something that maybe they don't even know what they're crying out for. You know, it's hard to tell because many countries such as Iran are so closed, but the testimony is that there are 15 million out of the 22 million, uh, I think those are the numbers in Iran, but the vast majority are listening to Christian television. They're hungry to hear about Jesus Christ. One man gives testimony that in Iran, if you're in a a gathering in a home or whatever, and you stand up and say, I'm a Christian. Anybody have any questions? He says, you'll be mobbed with people because they're so hungry to know about Jesus Christ. Now, we don't know the extent of it. We don't know what's happening. We do know that 70 pastors were arrested by the Ahmadinejad regime and put in prison and have been persecuted. Maybe some killed. Um, Some had to put up their houses uh, as bail so that they could... Get out of jail, and their families sold everything so that they could just get them out of prison. Uh, so, we, we know these are difficult times, but the, the Lord calls us to pray for these nations, pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted. But we know and we have seen that Jerusalem is the gateway to the Middle East in a very r- real sense because it's a mil- mirror of the world and of the world's challenges and of the world's problems that the scriptures instruct us to pray for the peace. Of Jerusalem. You know, what is Jerusalem? It certainly presents some hermeneutical and interpretive questions that we don't have time to be able to go all through but, uh, this morning, but it is a matter of um, knowing something about the history of Jerusalem. It's amazing how many countries, how many peoples have conquered Jerusalem and taken possession of it, only to be overthrown themselves, and so it has passed from, hands, from one country, from one uh, usually forcible dictatorship to another. Uh, it's had a very violent history and has suffered unbelievably. But Jerusalem is captured in the stories and the imagination of peoples throughout the world and even the peoples throughout history. Really, Jerusalem is far off the beaten trade routes. It's um, up on a high mountain without any uh, rivers near it. It's, it's away from the ocean or from the sea, Mediterranean Sea. There's no good reason to desire Jerusalem as a strategic center in the world, excepting for these imaginations, these stories. And what's difficult is that the stories conflict with one another. The imagination of one people is quite different from that of another people. For example, the dreams of the Jews or the vision of the Jews is that Mount Moriah, where the Temple Mount is or where the Dome of the Rock is today, is the foundation stone of the whole earth. That's what the the Jews believe, or at least that's what they present and uh, the tour guides present as you go to the Temple Mount, that The Temple Mount, that stone was the foundation stone from which the rest of the world was created. They consider it the site of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, the building of the temple by Solomon, where God's throne dwelt. The prayers are heard there, the Western Wall being the closest point to where the temple rested, that... um, Prayers are heard more immediately from that site than, say, from the United States or from China or someplace else. Um, but you can, if you really want to, your prayers answered, you can go into the Western Wall Tunnels, and there's a place that's a little bit closer, and it's like email. You know, as soon as you, an, as soon as you send the prayer, you get it right back, you know. But if you're someplace else, it's going to take you a couple of weeks maybe to, to, to hear an answer. And, uh, um, and and that's the way it was presented. And. and maybe the fellow was being a little bit cynical, but, but that's really the way uh, it was, it was, it's been expressed by numerous people. So the Jews have uh, a memory of Jerusalem, a memory of its sacredness and of, of um, what Jerusalem has meant to their forebears for millennia. And so they consider Jerusalem the capital of the state of Israel, and they will never give it up. To them, this is Masada, this is where they will die to the last person before they will ever give up the city. That's a powerful dream, is it not? And a powerful interpretation. So it's the dream. It's not just the physical place. It's the dream. It's the imagination. Well, Christians came along in the 4th century, and Queen Helena, Constantine, the Emperor Constantine's mother, was sent there to identify the holy sites where Jesus uh, served and ministered, where he died. He was buried, and so churches were built, on these sites. And so the the land became the Holy Land in the fourth century. And churches were built where Jesus was born, the Church of the Nativity in Bethlehem, dating back to that time. And again, the Church of the Holy Sepulcher. And for Christians, um, I should say traditional Christians, and they come from all over the world, and so it's amazing to see people from China and Koreans and South Americans and Africans and people from and Americans all coming and gathering at these sites. It's quite an amazing experience. But for Christians, this is a sacred place. They come to kiss the stone where Jesus was uh, laid after he was crucified. They come to stand in lines, sometimes for, for hours, to get in to see the place where he was buried, to see the sepulcher, And so for Christians, they revere this and have an imagination of what Jerusalem is to be as well. Muslims revere it, coming later in time, memorializing it because uh, Muhammad was said to have uh, ascended into the heavens uh, on his horse, no less. Uh, that he took a night trip to heaven, night vision. And so this is the third most sacred site to Muslims. And it's for that reason when they came and took the, um, took Jerusalem and the Temple Mount in the seventh century, they built the Dome of the Rock and have memorialized that night, um, that night trip, into the heavens, uh, at the Dome of the Rock, and then built a mosque, which is really the site for prayer, uh, there on the Temple Mount. You know they believe that Abraham offered Ishmael there, and uh, any Muslim would say, isn't Ishmael the firstborn? So it had to be Ishmael, right? And uh, trying to explain the, the son of promise versus the physical son is, is sometimes a challenge. But, you know, what is Jerusalem? It's, it's a city of dreams. It's a city of imagination. It's a city of hopes for the future and for all that, if only Sharia law could be proclaimed from Jerusalem, it would bring peace to the earth. I mean, Muslims are praying for the kingdom to come. It is a very different kingdom than we could imagine. Um, Likewise, Christians revere the the coming of Christ or the the death, the coming, the death of Christ and his even return, uh, as the scriptures say, on the Mount of Olives and likewise the Jews. But as we begin to consider Jerusalem, we desire to look at Jerusalem not through the lens of history. And so some have replaced it with The lens of prophecy, reading the scriptures and looking at what can take place in the future in Jerusalem. Many evangelicals especially look at Jerusalem as the place where the temple will be rebuilt. The temple uh, prophesied in Ezekiel, the third temple will be rebuilt, which would require the destruction of the Dome of the Rock uh, at at that same site. That um, Jesus will return and rule for a thousand years, ushering in the millennium. Of peace. Many of these see the state of Israel as a fulfillment of prophecy and support the state of Israel very uncritically. Having made commitments in order to remain or gain official status within the state, have made commitments that they will not evangelize. They will not share the gospel of Jesus Christ in the land. And so I ask you not to look at Jerusalem through the, eyes, uh, through the lens of history or through the lens of prophecy. When we go to Israel, we look at Jerusalem through the lens of the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. As your pastor recited from Romans chapter 1, verses 16 and 17, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, which is the power of God unto salvation. For everyone who believes, for the Jew first and also for the Greek, for in it the righteousness is For in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith as it it is written. The just shall live by faith. The power of God is revealed in the gospel. If we look at Jerusalem through the historical lens, all we see, especially over the last 62 years, 63 years, is war and conflict in the land. Bombings, explosions, retaliations by the the state of Israel. And it looks hopeless if we look through the lens of, of history. We must look at it through the lens of the gospel and through what God has said to us in Romans 1, 16 and 17, that the gospel is able to tear down the walls that have built up between these peoples for generations. In Ephesians chapter 2, if you have your Bible and be willing to look at that verse or or that portion of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2, that the Apostle Paul is expressing how that he is in prison because he was accused of taking a Gentile into the temple and under the threat of death, which he hadn't done. But while he's in prison, he writes these words. Therefore, remember that you, once Gentiles in the flesh, Ephesians 2.11, who were called uncircumcision by what is called a circumcision made in the flesh by hands, that at that time you were without Christ, without uh, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel, Strangers from the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off, have been brought near by the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of separation between Jew and Gentile. Having abolished in his flesh the enmity, that is the law of commandments, contained in ordinances, so as to to create in himself one new man from the two, thus making peace, that he might reconcile them both to God in one body through the cross, thereby putting to death the enmity. And he came and preached peace to you who were far off and to those who were near. For, For through him we both have access by one spirit to the Father, both Jew and Gentile, both Palestinian and Jew, can only come to the Father through the name of Jesus, the Messiah. By his broken body upon the cross, he has torn down the barriers between the two. And so history will only forever separate these people groups. And they're increasingly separated. As the security fence goes up, there's less and less contact between Palestinians and Jews. And so there's more and more uh, suspicion. There's more and more resentments that build up by their lack of contact with each other. But our God has told us that he has torn down that middle wall of separation. You know, how can the resentments of decades, centuries, and even millennia be overcome by the politicians. I once heard a Messianic pastor say, he was explaining to an Arab about, you know, how can the state continue? And, you know, first of all, well, he he was trying to explain how they could relate to each other. And he says, there'll be peace. And our politicians will work it out. Well, I was hearing this conversation by translation, and I'm just screaming inside saying, no, it'll never happen. The politicians will never, ever be able to bring peace to this land. You know, will the two-state solution bring peace? Of course not. I mean, the Palestinians, I mean, that's what Hamas means is destruction, meaning destroy Israel, drive them into the sea. They have held that view for 63 years, that, that we will drive the state of Israel and the Jewish people into the sea just like we drove the Crusaders into the sea. Now, that's a long memory, isn't it? And so they have this hope, this expectation that the land will go away. And so there's really only one other temporal solution, and that is that one people has to totally uh, subdue the other people so that there can be peace. And so that's what we read about in the newspapers, is the military solutions. You know, the bombings on the one side, uh, the Intifada, on the other side, the State of Israel, conducting military or- operations to, uh, to try to control the leadership of Hamas or Hezbollah within the land or within uh, Gaza or the surrounding region. So, will that ever bring peace? You know, absolutely not. But the promise of God is in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10. So, we, we're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. What does that mean? It means to pray for gospel peace. It's, it's to pray for this vision that God has given to us through the prophet Zechariah. In Zechariah 12, 10. That our God says, I will pour on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem. So it's not only the Jewish people, the house of David, but there's others within the city that uh, are not Jewish, that are Armenians, for instance. And I'm grateful for the opportunity to fellowship with an Armenian brother that's there. And he gave me an opportunity to to teach a seminar on the letters of Paul to the St. James Armenian Orthodox Seminary. In Jerusalem, and it was an extraordinary experience as I was reading these verses and saying, not only will God pour out his spirit upon the the Jews, but he will pour out his spirit upon the Armenians and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the spirit of grace and supplication, that they will look on me whom they pierced. Yes, they will mourn for him as one mourns for his only son and grieve for him as one grieves for a firstborn. You see, what will happen is that instead of focusing upon the sins of others against themselves... They'll begin to realize that their sin against Almighty God, that they're the Christ killers. And that's those are very painful words for a Jew to hear because they've suffered as being the Christ killers. But it was really to the Armenians that I was reading this verse. And I said, you know, and I don't know what prompted me to say it. I said, you know, I'm the Christ killer. And they said, no, 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 you're not the Christ killer the Jews are the Christ killers. and I said, no, no, it was my sin. The Bible says in Isaiah 53 that it was my sin that Jesus took upon himself. He died for me, and he died for you, and and you are Christ killers also. He said, no, no, no. And uh, they they were fighting it, but because everybody, he says, the Jews spit on us. And so we don't think about Armenians and the Jews having conflicts, but there's that tension, and it's gone on for centuries in conflicts. But it's only when we begin to see that it's our sin that's the greatest threat to our soul. Not the sins of other people. Now, that doesn't mean that, that, that the offenses of others aren't great, and they are great in the land of Israel. And don't have time to share with you some of the ways that both Palestinians and, and Jews have, have, Jewish people have offended and hurt each other. Just one story, that a dear brother in Bethlehem Gives testimony um, how his family was caught up in the war in 1948, and his father was a medic there in Bethlehem. And in 1948, after May 14, the Declaration of Independence, um, the Arab states gathered together to try to defeat the state of Israel and the people of Israel and, and to reclaim the land. And at any rate, his father stepped outside the door, didn't get feet from the door when he was shot and killed instantly. And this brother is troubled within himself because he says, when I hear about bombings in Israel, I know that my immediate response should be uh, grief for these families and, and for those who are affected by this violence. But he says, my immediate response is to say, for every Jew that dies, there's been hundreds of Palestinians that have died, and it's hard for me to grieve Now, he's expressing this as a quandary or or perplexity about himself, because he is a Christian man. He wants to honor the Lord, but that's how deep these these pains are, these wounds are. And so it's easy to constantly focus, and this is true for each one of us. It's easy for us to be victims and to think that somebody else has offended us. But it's really, um, God has given to us a wonderful testimony in um, Mosab, Hassan, try to keep his name straight here, where is it, that uh, Mosab Musa, Hassan Yosef, the son of Hamas, his father started Hamas, and he's come out with a book called The Son of Hamas, and, and it's a fascinating story about how, how God led him to himself, and he's become a Christian, and now is living in, in this country. But he, uh, he gives testimony in there, and he says, what gripped him was when Jesus said that we, uh, that we are to pray for our enemies. And he says, all of a sudden it became clear to him that the that the Spirit of God made it clear to him that the greatest enemies to him were not the Jews. The greatest enemy to him were not his uncle Ibrahim, where he describes how he abused him, really. The greatest threat to him was not the goon who was the prison guard uh, at the Israeli prison that he ended up serving time in. They were not the greatest threat to his soul, but it was his own corruption. It was his own sin. That's what Zechariah 12:10 is saying. This is what I would commend to you to pray, what God's word commands you to pray. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, for the gospel peace, for the gospel to be so powerful that these people would see, not just these people, that we might see that the greatest threat to our soul is not someone else, but it's our own sin. It's our own offenses towards God. They're much greater than whatever anybody has done for us, against us. But the promise is also in, is in Zechariah 13:1. 1. In that day, the fountain shall be opened for the house of David and for the inhabitants of Jerusalem for sin and for uncleanness. There'll be a fountain open and they will be cleansed and they will be focused upon the joy of the Lord, just as you expressed at the beginning of this service. You know, who alone can rescue? Who alone can save? Who can resurrect us from the grave? You know, it is our Savior Jesus Christ alone that he alone can rescue us. That's what the inhabitants of Jerusalem and the surrounding region need to know that God alone can rescue them. There's no political solution. There's no military solution. There's only a gospel solution. And that's our prayer. And I pray that you could envision the Lord bringing this to pass. The vision of a Jerusalem gateway partnership is that we can minister to Jews and Arabs and Palestinians together. Because it's almost a rule of thumb, so to speak, that if you work with Arabs then you can't work with Jews. If you work with Jews, you can't work with Arabs. And typically, you you get caught up in vilifying the other group, whichever the other group is. And we ask why. God has made promises to both, even as Abraham prayed in in Genesis 17, 18, oh, that Ishmael might live before you, O God. That's our prayer, is that Ishmael, that the Arabic peoples might live before you, O God, that they might be um, filled with your spirit and to exalt the name of Jesus. But likewise, we have... The vision of of, uh, Romans chapter twelve, Romans chapter eleven, where the promise is that all Israel will be saved. In the prophet Isaiah chapter nineteen, and at our last Jerusalem Gateway Partnership meeting in Bethlehem, Frank Sindler, who leads our partnership, who himself is Jewish uh, believer, and has worked amongst Muslims for the last 20 years. Read this passage. Then the Lord will be known to Egypt, and the Egyptians will know the Lord in that day and will make sacrifice and offering. Yes, they will make a vow to the Lord and perform it, and the Lord will strike Egypt. He will strike and heal it. They will return to the Lord, and he will be entreated by them and heal them. In that day, there will be a highway from Egypt to Assyria, and the Assyrian will come into Egypt, and the Egyptian into Assyria, and the Egyptians will serve with the Assyrians in that day. And I don't believe this has ever been... Fulfilled in the way that it's described here in Isaiah chapter 19. In that day, Israel will be one of three with Egypt and Assyria, which includes both Syria and uh, what we think of as Iraq. A blessing in the midst of the land, whom the Lord of hosts shall bless, saying, Blessed is Egypt, my people, ami, which is just a word that's only used for the children of Israel. But Egypt will be my people. And Assyria, the work of my hands and Israel, my inheritance. That covers the enti- spiritually the entire region that was promised to, to uh, Abraham in Genesis chapter uh, 15, from the river of Egypt, the Nile, all the way up to the Euphrates, that there'll be a spiritual unity, not, not, not a political unity, but a spiritual un- unity of those who are worshiping and blessing the name of the Lord our God. And, and so all Israel will be saved, we read in Romans 11, 26 to 29. As it is written, the deliverer will come out of Zion, and he will turn away ungodliness from Jacob, And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Concerning the gospel, they are enemies for your sake. But concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers, for the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. If God has called the Jews, even though they're in a state of blindness, even though they're enemies today of the gospel, and we could go on and on about how they're enemies for the gospel, and that's true, then nonetheless the promises of God remain secure because of his integrity. And so it's John Murray the professor at Westminster Seminary comments in Romans 11, Israel are both enemies and beloved at the same time. Enemies as regards the gospel, beloved as regards the election. Beloved thus means that God has not suspended or rescinded his relation to Israel as his chosen people in terms of the covenants made with their fathers. Unfaithful as Israel has been and broken off for that reason, yet God still sustains his peculiar relation of love to them, a relation that will be demonstrated and vindicated in the restoration. We're to pray. We're to pray for the peace of Jerusalem. You know, the peace is a gospel peace. The city is this city of imagination that the the story needs to change. It needs to change in that God has promised both to save the house of David and the inhabitants of of Jerusalem, the Arabs and and the Gentile peoples that live there. The storyline has to change in the mind of the church and the vision of the church in the imagination of the church, to be consistent with God's heart for that land. You know, who does the land belong to? It belongs to the meek, those who respond to him, those who humble and are broken before him and worship and adore him, that God will bring peace to that land so the city of Jerusalem will stand up to its name. It'll be a city of peace. And we're to pray for this, and we're to give it a priority. That doesn't mean we don't pray for the rest of the nations of the world, and even as Orangewood has been faithful to minister in many places. It's not that we're to set any of that aside, but there is a responsibility that we have to the Jews. After all, it's it's the Jewish people that gave to us the Scriptures, who gave to us, as human instruments, who gave to us the Gospel. Even our Savior was Jewish. All the first believers were Jewish. They entrusted it to us. And that's been a blessing to us. The Deliverer will come out of Zion. He will turn away ungodliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant with them concerning the gospel. They are enemies for your sake, but concerning the election, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. Jesus' last command, it really wasn't a command, it was a promise. When the Holy Spirit has come upon you, you will be witnesses to me, both in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the uttermost parts of the earth. Now, it's understandable that that your Jerusalem is is, uh, Maitland and Orlando and Florida, and so that's... Certainly the place where we are to begin. But if we take it, take the scriptures literally, aren't we to pray for the peace of that city that's known today as Jerusalem? Will it not bring a blessing to the nations if the peoples of that city can begin to tear down the security fences and can begin to genuinely love each other from their heart, not because of some political treaty, that the people can be united as Um, Arabs and Jewish believers. Would this not impact the world? Even as it's stated, and and this is what we're to pray for. I've set watchmen on your walls, O Jerusalem. They shall never hold their peace day or night. You You who make mention of the Lord, do not keep silent and give him no rest. Give God no rest till he makes, till he establishes and until he makes Jerusalem a praise in the earth. That Jerusalem will become a wonder to the world. Can it be that Jesus, who was considered uh, the blight upon Israel, whom they resented because they got blamed for his death, that now he's the glory of Israel? Is it possible that Muslim background people have now come to faith in Jesus and worship together with Jewish people and even Americans and others from around the world? Is that possible? Could it not happen in Northern Ireland? Could it not happen in... Um, in any number of the conflicted areas of the world, it's a testimony. In Romans eleven fifteen, the Apostle Paul says, if their casting away, meaning the, the Jews being cast away, has been the blessing and reconciling of the Gentiles and of the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? Charles Hodge, the 19th century Reformed theologian, Writes in his commentary in Romans, this event has been facilitated, as remarked above, by the Jews. What will the restoration of the Jews then be but life from the dead? That is, that is, it will be a most glorious event, as though a new world had arisen. Not only glorious in itself, but in the highest degree beneficial to the Gentiles. This was the Puritan hope that all Israel will be saved. It's even in our own catechism, in the larger catechism, question 191. When we pray, what are we, what are we praying in the Lord's prayer? in the second petition, thy kingdom come. What we're praying for is that the kingdom of Satan would be shattered and destroyed, that the gospel would prosper, that the Jews would be called in the the fullness of the Gentiles gathered together to the glory of God. I pray that the Lord would give you and has given you that vision of gospel peace coming to that land. That is our vision, and we are confident that though we're few, it's the power of the gospel that's powerful. It's not how many of us that there are, but that he will bless his word. We're there to support the congregations, to help them, to do the ministry of the gospel. To um, We don't go to do it ourselves. We, we go to really learn from them and to see how God is, is ministering uh, there. Um, so many stories I wanted to tell, but I'll just tell you one that, that was so powerful to me. On, on February 16, we met... Uh, Messianic, a couple of Messianic pastors and a couple of, uh, well, Palestinian from Bethlehem and an Arab Israeli, and there is a difference. Um, But anyway, we gathered together and they were beginning to talk about the politics and the problems and and it got more and more intense and more and more intense. I mean, they were Christian gentlemen and they were very gracious to one another, but it was getting more and more intense. And uh, I was supposed to, at 1215, you know, minister the Lord's Supper, because one of these brothers had to leave. Well, it got to be 1225, and it's getting more and more intense. And finally, I said to our leader, Frank Sindler, we need to do the Lord's Supper. And uh, it was amazing how it all ended. And we came to the, the Lord's table together to remember the broken body and the shed blood of our Lord. And the healing was so evident And just, that was a microcosm of what God is able to do. The the offenses are still real. Forgive us our debts, even as we forgive those who are indebted to us. The debts are real. The pain is is significant. But the blood of Jesus Christ, his resurrection, the gospel, was able to unite these brothers. If it can do it for a dozen, can it do it for 11 million? maybe not every last one, but so many that it will be a wonder of the world that all Israel is saved. It will be a testimony. We're to pray, to believe that our God is able to to do this. Pray for the peace of Jerusalem, shall we pray. Father, thank you so much for the blessing that your word is to us, that it does give us an imagination and, and dreams that we dare not dream ourselves, that though the children of Israel are blinded, to the gospel, though they are in captivity to their own lust, their own desires and to their own uh, works righteousness, to depending upon themselves. Free them, we pray, and pour out your spirit like waters in the Negev in the desert. We pray that you pour out your spirit and that that the Jewish people and the Palestinian people and the Arab people would stand and worship and wonder before the living God and say, our God has done great things for us. Though we have sown in tears, we are reaping in joy. And the nations will say, the Lord has blessed them. The Lord has, has comforted them with a great comfort. We just praise you and thank you for what you are doing. We praise you ahead of time for what you will do in Jerusalem and in the Middle East. We pray for the gospel peace of Jerusalem, that, it would, um, that the gospel would break forth, break hearts, that you would send forth your spirit as a, a fountain of cleansing to wash away their sin, And unite all of these peoples in worship to the living God. And we praise you for what you'll do. You are the Lord. We bless your name. In Jesus' name, amen.